A story is told of a famous tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. How many of you have ever heard that story or that name? And I'm asking because it is a well-used sermon illustration among pastors. In 1858, he stretched a rope across Niagara Falls. Anybody know that distance? 1,300 feet. That's over three football fields. And he was going to walk across that rope. And he did it. He did it many times, over and over. And the crowds would show up to watch him do it. And he would do it over, you know, several different occasions. Over a series of years, he would do this. One time, he got the idea of pushing a wheelbarrow across that, that rope, 1,300 feet across. You're shaking your head no at me because you're thinking, there's no way. But you would show up and watch him do it. We like crazy. <laughs> as long as it's somebody else. He finally shouted to the crowds, would anybody like to get in the wheelbarrow? Well, we're going to take crazy one step farther. There's probably a whole line of people, right? Ready to get in the wheelbarrow? No. No volunteers. Finally, as a show of support, his manager, a woman, not that it matters, but it's a detail, she got in the wheelbarrow and he pushed her across Niagara Falls. Now, why do you think that's such a popular story as a sermon illustration? True story. Because it illustrates what faith is. When we talk about faith, and the title of my message is A Life of Faith. We're looking at that in Elizabeth and Zacharias and Mary and Joseph. We all like that idea of trusting the Lord. But what does it really mean? It doesn't mean, yes, Lord, I believe what the Bible says about you. I, it's more than just I believe you died for my sins. It is then taking a step of putting your life in his hands. And because you think, well, what if he messes things up? What if he makes a mistake? And the truth is, it's hard for us to give up control of our lives. You see, I want to trust the Lord and keep control of my life. Is that you? But biblical faith is saying, Lord, I've seen what control of my life looks like. And I didn't do such a good job. And you finally get to that place where you say, Lord, here you go. And when you get to that place where you get in the wheelbarrow. It's not that God didn't want to work in your life before. It's just that he's not going to overpower you and force you to do the things he desires to do. You see, God loves you. And in turn, love is chosen to be reciprocated. 
God loves you, but by the nature of love, he asks you to choose to love him in return. I proposed to my wife when I was 23 years old, and she chose to respond to my proposal, and that meant giving up her old life. No more dating those creeps. <laughs> those losers, because I was the best one out there. That was in 1982, I think it was, when I proposed. In fact, it was Christmas Day, 1982. We just went to see It's a Wonderful Life, so we were all romantic and sentimental. But I meant it. And we're still married and have three Three grown daughters and eight grandkids. Amen. I'll tell her that three of you clapped. <laughs> now, the world thinks that faith is the absence of facts. Right? Well, since we don't have evidence, we're left to faith. Biblical faith is not the absence of facts. It's our response to facts. You see, Charles Blondin proved that he could go back and forth across Niagara Falls over and over and over again. He proved that he had the skill. So was it so crazy to get into the wheelbarrow? Well, it wasn't crazy, but I'm still not doing it. But... With Jesus, I'm doing it. I, there was a point at which I said, Lord, take my life. I have no idea where I'm going. Your word says that you have good things planned for me. So I put the Lord to the test. When I was a teenager back in the 70s. And the Lord, I can tell you now, at 63 years old, the Lord kept his word. He's taken me through things that were hard, but that's not the guarantee that your life will be easy. The promise is that your life will have purpose and peace and the power of God. Faith is a decision of the heart that leads to action. That's what biblical faith is. Faith is a decision of the heart that leads to action. And when we're looking at these stories in the Bible, it's almost like we're looking at celebrity stories, but we're not. We're looking at ordinary people just like you and me. The only reason they became famous or well-known is because these ordinary people trusted God and they became known for the amazing things that God did. So as we're looking through this story of Zacharias and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, please don't say, well, that, they're exceptional. They're not. They're you. The story of faith is how a great God works through weak, ordinary people. That is what's amazing about this. God's not looking for the amazing, exceptional, exceptional people as if he can't work without these talented celebrities out there. 
God delights in using nobody and doing something amazing. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, if you want to catch up on your own reading, Luke tells us the purpose of writing his gospel. He's writing to someone named Theophilus. Theophilus means lover of God. And so it's speculation. We don't know if it's a person or a group or a pseudonym or whatever, but he's writing to somebody. He's writing an orderly account of the facts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He would, he's writing so that Theophilus will know the certainty of these events. Luke is a historian as well as being a doctor, a physician. Last week we looked at verses 5 through 25. The birth announcement of John the Baptist. His parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, they are now an elderly couple. Past childbearing years. Zacharias is a priest serving in the temple. And while he is there burning incense in the temple, the angel Gabriel appears to him and says, your wife Elizabeth is going to conceive and bear a son. Your prayers have been heard, Gabriel says. Elizabeth will bear a son. And more than just have a son, he will prepare the way for the Messiah. They are to call his name John or Johannan. They had nobody in their family named Johannan, John. And yet Gabriel says, he is to be called John, which means graced by God. Today we're going to look at verses 26 through 38. I think I have enough time for that today. And it is the birth announcement of Jesus Christ. So we've had John the Baptist's birth announcement. Now the birth announcement of Jesus Christ. Now follow with me. I'm going to read quite a long section beginning at verse 26. Now in the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was, Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a young man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of saying or greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Verse 34. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be? Since I do not know a man. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, 
has also conceived a son in her old age. This is now the sixth month for who, her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And verse 38, then Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. That is just an amazing, simple statement of faith. I'm your servant. Let it be, do exactly as the word of the Lord says. And that's all we're, we're saying faith is. Faith is often kind of distorted into, well, if you have faith, you're going to go make things happen. That's not biblical faith. It's not up to you to make things happen. It is up to you to be yielded to the things that God wants to make happen. That scripture that says, where Paul says, and uh, says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Man, that becomes distorted into, into if you have the faith for something, then you can go do it. That's not what that means. It means that it's God who is working in us to will, to will and to do according to his good pleasure. We just saw this in Philippians. So the pressure is off of you to make things happen. So many pastors feel this weight like they have to make the church grow. They have to make things happen. And it's an easy trap to fall into. The pressure of ministry, the pressure of life is intense. Every one of you has has needs in your life because you're normal. And you're thinking, how can I make this happen? And the life of faith is saying, God, how do you want to take care of this? How do you want to strengthen the church? Lord, how are you going to connect our church with people in the community? And then we have a part to play in doing it and go, we go take action, but it's really his plan. And if it's his plan, then he'll do it. If we get in the wheelbarrow, we're just, we're partnering with the Lord's work that he wants to do. So if you can get that, that makes ministry exciting. That arrangement makes ministry exciting. Lord, what is it you want to do today? And over my 30 years of being a pastor, every Sunday morning, I have to remind myself that. There's so many details to running a service and running a church. It's so easy to get caught up in, well, that's not right, or that's not right, or that person didn't show up, and oh no, what are we going to do in children's ministry? Or You just get obsessed with the details and I have to say now Lord it's about the work you want to do in the lives of the people who are standing in front of me right now a lot of things can go wrong in the operations and we can still get ministry done amen we can and there are always things that aren't as good as they could be and we'll keep working to get things better but none of those things prevent ministry from happening. 
They really just prevent visitors from coming back. <laughs> because visitors are going, well, I didn't like that little thing. You know what visitors care about? The parking and bathrooms. Well, thank God we have lots of parking. We have so much parking, we can overflow into the food court. And put monitors out there. Prayer request answered. We have enough bathrooms in case you're worried about that. How do I know those are the concerns of visitors? Well, we're, we have the surveys done by ch survey groups of churchgoers. Easy to get distracted and forget why we're here. We're here to hear from the Lord. And you're not just here to hear from the Lord, you're here to respond to the Lord. Please don't forget that part. Don't get, say, well, that was a great message today. Don't be in the crowd going, did you see what Charles Blondin did? Because Jesus walks through the villages and wonders who it is who is going to reach out and touch the hem of his garment. Be a responder. There's five things I want you to know about this baby who is to be born, Jesus. Gabriel tells Mary five things that are important. Number one, he shall be called Jesus. He shall be called Jesus. Now we all know Jesus, but did you know Jesus is really the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yehoshua or Joshua. In the Old Testament, he would be called Joshua, but he is called Jesus, more accessible to the world. Now, in the Bible, God reveals himself according to our needs and according to his needs his ability to provide our need. Whenever the people in the Old Testament would cry out to God for God to provide their needs, he would speak to them and say, I am, I got to look at my notes, make sure I remember, Jehovah Jireh. You've probably heard that before. It literally means God is saying, I am your provider. And so the very things you're asking God for help that's how God reveals himself. When the people prayed for peace, God would say, my name is Jehovah Shalom. I am your peace. And you, there's a whole lot of different names for God in the Old Testament. And they're all related to God revealing himself, who he is, and how his nature meets our needs. And so Jesus has a meaning. Jesus is the Old Testament name Joshua, which is actually a shortened version of Jehovah Hashua. Like Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah, um, Jehovah Yeshua, which means God is your salvation. God is, he's saying, I am your salvation. Do you need a savior? That's my name. 
That's my name. And we love this story, these stories of the gospels, but you realize it's been 400 years since the close of the Old Testament. And the people of Israel are waiting for the fulfillment of promises and expectations that God has given in the Old Testament. They're waiting. And here is the announcement. This child is to be called Jesus. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. God says to Israel, you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I actually learned that passage when I was about 28 years old and I would have a Jehovah's Witness knock at my door every Saturday morning and irritate me. And I had no answer for the things that he was saying to me. And, you know, the Bible says that Jesus is the Savior and he would say, yeah, that's right. But there are other Saviors he would kind of, you know, mess with the wording of Scripture. And I came across this. That here is God speaking himself and says, besides me, there are no other gods. And besides me, there is no other savior. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And he is the savior who promised to be the savior of the world. The second thing Gabriel said about Jesus is he will be called the son of the highest. The son of the highest. This speaks of his divine nature. His divine nature. Micah 5, 2. I think I may have read this to you before, but I love this scripture. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. And again, that's just an Old Testament way that the ruler who would be born in Bethlehem never had a beginning. Though he has a human birth and he becomes the baby Jesus and the man Jesus, before that he was God. And when this says that his goings forth are from old, from everlasting, that's an Old Testament way of saying that he never had a beginning. He never had a beginning. He is divine in nature. Paul says in Colossians 2.9, For in him dwells all the fullness of the, the Godhead bodily. The third thing, Gabriel says, is the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. The throne of his father David. God will fulfill a promise made to King David in the Old Testament that his very descendant will rule on the throne of Israel and that his kingdom will never end. Not only a descendant of David would be a king, that's not a a shocker, but that his, 
his rule would never end. His rule would never end. During a time of war in the Old Testament, which was kind of common, that there was trouble in Israel in the Old Testament, God spoke to King Ahaz. And Ahaz was looking for some type of a sign, proof that God was there and watching over the nation of Israel. And God said to Ahaz, ask and I'll give you a sign so that you, the people of Israel, will know that I am in control. And God gave this sign, Isaiah 7, 14. This is the backstory, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story to Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Do you know what Emmanuel means? It means God with us. God is literally with us. Not God is just with us in, in spirit. But this baby is to be by many names, but one of them, Emmanuel, God with us. The fourth thing Gabriel says this is that he'll be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. And Mary wants to know how this is going to happen. Number five, he will be called the son of God, which is obviously connected to being the son of the highest. But being born of a woman and conceived of the spirit means that he is both a, a man, a human, as well as divine. It means he possesses both human nature as well as divine nature. In the middle of Job's suffering in the Old Testament, he said to God, essentially, there is there's a gulf between me and you, God. If only there was a daysman. I love that Old Testament word. If there was only a mediator, someone who could be God between me and you, someone who could touch me and to touch you. Job was saying exactly what we all say. Lord, are you there? Lord, how do I reach you? Do you see me? Have you ever said those words to God? We believe God is there and yet we can't reach him. And the Bible, Old and New Testament speaks of a mediator who would be able to touch God and touch man. He can touch God, the Father, because he's sinless. You see, you and I, born into this world, are born in sin, and we, can't, we have no access to the Father. Unless someone can go to the Father for us, but as well, he can mediate for man because he is man. And being a man who is sinless, that means he can die for the sins of man, and it will satisfy the demands of the law, not to go too off into this tangent of the nature of redemption, but the fact that he was sinless and a man qualified him to die for the sins of the world. That's why his death on the cross was able to be a satisfying atonement for you. 
He could reach you and reach the Father and be a mediator between us. And Paul said that. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting that how simple this is. Bible critics say, well, Mary wasn't really a virgin, and the, and the word virgin doesn't mean a virgin. Now, think of this. If Mary wasn't a virgin, and the, the sign in the Old Testament is that a virgin will conceive, or as critics say, that a young girl will conceive and bear a child. Is that a miracle? God speaks to Ahaz and says, here is a sign. A young girl will get pregnant. That's not much of a sign. But the word for virgin, Alma, actually is virgin. It's not another word for a young girl. That's not a miracle. If you have a problem with miracles, that's another discussion. But we see miracles all around us. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace... There will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So all of that language about his kingdom being eternal, it's forever, no end. It almost sounds poetic. But it's literal. I want you to know it's literal. And when we look at the world today, we all see that the world is collapsing. The nations of the world are imploding. Did you know that this is exactly what the Bible says will happen in the end times? It's as if God is saying, go ahead and try and do it your way. And it's at that time when there is literally not just a national crisis like in our country, but what's happening in our country is happening around the world. Collapse of governments, collapse of economies, corruption of rulers, you know, God knows all of this and he sees it all. And at the, the fullness of times, as the Bible would say it, the Lord will return and set up his kingdom and he will rule and reign forever. He will rule in righteousness, not in corruptions, not in payments and bribes. And when he rules, he will literally rule upon the earth forever. So this is literal, literal language in the Old Testament that's fulfilled in the book of Revelation. Did you know that both Joseph and Mary are descendants of King David? Through two different sons of David. So they're both in the genealogy. 
One of their genealogies is in Matthew, that's Joseph's, and Mary's genealogy is in Luke. We'll get to that in a few weeks. So from a human sense, they are legally both in the line of David. I love just that Mary believes Gabriel. And again, she says, behold, the main servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. If you and I could learn anything from this passage, it's that. First, I want to make sure that what I'm hearing is really from the Lord. Because a lot of things we hear in our brains and we think it's God. Right? And it's not. So many people have said, the Lord said, the Lord told me. And I want to say, I don't think so. And so, but at the same time, the Lord could tell you to do something that really is the Lord, and it's just hard for you to do, and you don't want to hear it. So forget about the things we don't know if God said. How about if we start with the things in God's word that we do know he said? How about if we work on those things? And one is to completely put our lives in Jesus' hands. He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Can you believe that? Yes. I, I can believe that when he said that, he meant it. There are many other things he said. I'm going to read through just this next section. It's verses 39 through 56. And even though Mary is clear... What's amazing is that she goes to visit Elizabeth and she confirms this very thing that Gabriel's told to her. So just reinforcing what Gabriel has said. Follow with me. Verse 39. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She spoke out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which are told her from the Lord. Do you remember that Gabriel said to Elizabeth that the babe in her womb will be filled with the Spirit? So this is both, this is a confirmation for both of them. Has this ever happened to you where you think the Lord has spoken to you something and then you go talk to somebody and they say the same thing to you? I love that and it freaks me out. <laughs> but the Lord, because we, we don't want to go off on a tangent. But this literally happened to me yesterday related to the church. Not yesterday, sorry, I've lost track of my days, but in my old age, you'll forgive me. Um, it was Friday. I was coming down. I live in Vancouver and working out how to be down here more during the week. Um, but I was driving down Friday. I stopped in Kaiser 
to pick up something. And as I'm thinking about what we're going to do this weekend, and I'm thinking, Lord, how are you going to work in the church? And how do we get the word out? And I just, I want to know how things are going to go. I just, I just like that. I want to plan. And while I'm asking the Lord how, how we're going to get the word out, my phone rang. I grabbed my phone. It was a good friend of mine from KPDQ, the radio station in Portland. Uh, he runs a local ministries program that I've been on a lot. And he was just checking in. He knows that I'm here as your pastor, and he wants to know how things are going. You might know Mike Lee. The guys on our team know Mike Lee. I said, Mike, I needed to talk to you. He goes, really? I said, Mike, I'm in, he, know, I, he knows in Albany. I said, how can I get the word about, out about what we're doing in Albany? He goes, well, I'll have you on the radio. Let me know when you can come on. So in a couple of weeks, me and Tanner, our assistant pastor, we're going to go on the radio and we're going to record a whole hour program and just share what the Lord is doing. Now it's a Portland station, but it gets down here pretty far. It gets down here pretty far, pretty far. And you know what, for me, I'm just saying, it was just a little reminder from the Lord that he, he's working here. Isn't that amazing? Verse 46, let's finish this. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservants for behold, henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his, heart, with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Verse 56, and Mary remained about three months and returned to her house. There's some amazing, amazing practical lessons here that even though your story is different from this, the lessons are the same. The, and that's why we study the Bible, just not to, we're not here to study the Bible to know more Bible. Did you know that? We're not reading the Bible to say, I know lots of Bible. I said this to a pastor a couple of years ago, and he about threw something at me. He thought I was saying something heretical. We don't study the Bible to know the Bible. We study the Bible to know Jesus. That's why we're studying the Bible. This is not intellectual or theological. It's personal. It's relational. Some of these lessons are just, just perfect for you. Number one is that God sees and he lifts up those who are lowly or humble. As unseen as your life might be, to others around you, 
God sees you. And the Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the what? To the humble. So you are in control of your life and you can decide to be humble before God. And God honors that. He sees that and he blesses that. A second lesson is that God has mercy on those who honor him or fear him. Now, fear is just a Bible, uh, Bible way of saying that we live in reverence and honor of who the Lord is. We're not afraid of God, but we honor him. And the Lord shows mercy on those who put him first. A third lesson, God fills the hungry with good things. If you have needs, be humble before the Lord and God promises he will care for you. The last one, this is important, related to all of this, as Mary has said, God remembers and keeps his promises. Did you know that? God remembers and keeps his promises. Sometimes God may make a promise in your life, which may take him years to fulfill, not because he forgot or he didn't mean it, but because it was for a certain time and place in your life. There's the daily things, the weekly things, but then there are the bigger things in your life that we're thinking that you even forgot about. But even if you forgot, God didn't forget and this is not strange. This is not unusual. Um, forgive me if I talk about my kids or my grandkids too much, but they're either exciting or annoying. So I'll just share stories with you all the time. But I know there are things that I have planned for my own grandkids that they're not ready for yet. And I've said... Well, if you ever want to do this, I'll help you do this, or I'll show you how to do this or something. And they act uninterested and forget about it. And months or whatever later, they suddenly wake up and come back to me. And I'm kind of waiting for that to happen. See, I didn't forget. And if you don't forget promises you've made to your kids, God isn't forgetting promises he's made to you. Maybe he will keep those promises at any moment, but the thing is you're not ready. It could be an area of responsibility he wants to put in your hands. And when you are mature enough or done being distracted with something else, he'll, he'll do what he wants to do. I love that, and in fact... So many things in God's word, if God says it's a promise, it means you can hold him to it. When we make promises, we don't always mean it. And I, I've shared before that because my father was an alcoholic, I learned to never believe that promises were going to be kept. My dad wouldn't. 
In fact, alcoholics make more promises than the average person because um, they're always trying to redeem themselves from other screw-ups. But my dad would say, I promise, we'll do this, we'll do this. And he would never keep any of those promises. So as an adult, I learned not to believe promises. And the Lord, I have learned, the Lord keeps his word. The Lord keeps his word. I'm going to have the worship team come up. And I just want you to now be thinking about how this amazing story, this story that is about other people, really how it applies to you. In your small groups this week, you're going to be talking about these lessons. What did you learn today about what it means to live a life of faith? Are you actually living a life of faith? Or do you have one foot in the wheelbarrow and one out on on solid ground? Are you standing in the crowd saying, Lord, I do trust you, but your belief hasn't transferred to action? What promises do you think maybe the Lord has made in your life that you're still waiting for? Maybe there's just injury or disappointment in your past. And I encourage you to trust the Lord to heal you and just put those things behind you. That's one of the most amazing things that the Lord does for us is just to remove the shame of the past. This is what he does.